You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Ruth. This series uses the book of Ruth to explore how God wields hopeless, difficult, and mundane situations in life to bring about hope, love, and redemption. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. It's a privilege to be here to speak with you. I'm actually, uh, I'm honored and I'm a little bit surprised. I'm honored because, as Brian mentioned, we're kicking off a new series uh, through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, here at Jubilee, we believe uh, the scriptures to be true. We believe that they are God's inspired word for us. And so we teach and we preach through the scriptures in two specific ways in light of that. One is we do so topically, so we may choose a particular topic and we'll work our way through that topic in a series of messages, or we'll preach through a book of the Bible as we're going to start this morning through the book of Ruth. Now, when you preach through the book of the Bible or a book of the Bible, it has some distinct advantages to that because, uh, as we know, there are parts of the scriptures that have an edge to them. And you come across certain issues, topics, whatever you want to say, that might be difficult to handle. And so the, the tendency is to say, well, let's just kind of skip that. We, you know, let's just kind of go on. But when you go through a book of the Bible and you systematically work your way through that book, you can't do that. You have to hit on those topics. And today, as we're in Ruth chapter 1, we're going to actually address one of those hot potato topics, if you will. And so uh, I think God will bless through that. The, the, the other thing, I'm a bit surprised that I, I, I'm here because I have a little bit of a history of being a practical joker. And uh, a few years back, we launched our Washington location. And uh, we spent a lot of time, at the time I was serving as a, a location pastor for that location, and we had spent months and months and months building up to this launch. And it was going to take place on a Saturday night. We were going to be using another facility. I think it was St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Washington. And it just so happened that that first launch was going to take place on April 1st. So that morning, I sent a text to Brian and a few of the leaders, and I did it individually. And I said, we've got a problem. St. Peter's burned to the ground last night, and we've got no place to meet. And my wife, Gail, when I told her that, she said, now you told them that you lied, didn't you? To which I said, no, I didn't do that. So I didn't follow up with it. About 10 minutes later, I got a text back from Brian. He said, good one, Rick. You almost had me. But I didn't hear back from the other leaders, so I showed up at the meeting that night, and one of the guys there at the Washington location came right up to me, pointed his bony, bony finger in my face, said, you're a dead man. I said, well, what's it? He said, man, I got on the phone when I got that text. I started calling people. Hey, St. Peter's burned to the ground. We've got to find another place to meet. And there was chaos throughout the whole thing for a bit, so I had a good time with that. And then I think one of the other times I preached at the city location, our city location down in South City, uh, I started out, Brian was out of town. It's a dangerous thing when he goes out of town to ask me to preach. He was out of town. I had everybody, before I even started, get out their communication cards. I said, okay, on the back, here's what I want you to write in the comment section. This was the best sermon we've ever heard. We need to have Rick speak more often. So everybody did it. And uh, I, th- I think that kind of backfired because I didn't get a preach for a long time after that. So, so anyway, that's just kind of how it goes. 
But anyway, we're going we're gonna to start with the book of Ruth. If you have uh, a Bible uh, on an app or you brought a physical Bible, which is, you know, is kind of rare these days. But if you have that, go ahead and turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. And while you're doing that, I'm going to get started with some background. Because for us to understand this story, and it's a beautiful, beautiful narrative. And guys, let me just say, it's not just about the girls. I mean, it's, it's title. It's got a girl's name to it. We get that. And it starts out about these, these women in here. So this, this is some, there's some meaty stuff for all of us here. So trust me. But in the background here, we have to understand this is a period of time in the Old Testament that's referred to as the period of the judges. And the events that are taking place in this book occur right after the book of Judges. And so the book of Judges is characterized by the final verse in that book. And we're going to put that up on the screen here. I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, throughout the book of Judges, what you get, you get this cyclical pattern of behavior. You get the children of Israel who rebelled against God. God sends enemies against them to bring them back to him. Then God raises up, they repent, the children of Israel repent. God raises up a judge or a deliverer. And then when they're delivered, oddly enough, they go right back to rebel against God. God sends enemies, they repent, God delivers them, and it goes on and on and on and on and on for years and years and years. So that's the culture of where we're at when we start this book of Ruth. So to say that this is a dark time in the history of Israel would be an understatement uh, of mammoth proportions because from all appearances, the children of Israel do not look anything like the blessing of the whole world, which was promised to Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 12. God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Well, at this point in time in their history, it looked like God's promises had failed and it looked like God had abandoned them. And that was the general uh, sense throughout the whole country. There's this cloud uh, amongst the whole nation spiritually that, that was uh, covering them at this time. In fact, in, in Judges chapter 6, you get this occurrence that takes place where an angel of the Lord shows up to the soon would-be judge or the soon would-be deliverer, and he says, God is with you, O valiant warrior. To which this guy replies, oh yeah, right, if God's with us, then why are we slaves to the Midianites? That's a very good question. Because it didn't look like God was with them and it didn't look like God was anywhere to be seen. It looked like they had been abandoned by God. And that was pretty much the whole attitude of what was going on with these folks. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible. You hear some people say, oh, the Bible's not relevant. Let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Bible nails people's hearts. And aren't we just like that? When things go wrong or something happens that, that we didn't expect or that we deem as bad, all of a sudden we raise up our hands and say, where is God? What's going on? God's against me. God's abandoned me. He's not here. What's happening? And we see that here in this book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1. 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, Ju- in, uh, in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his, of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now let's just stop there, and we're going to see here, just from these verses, we can glean some some valuable, valuable uh, information for us. One of the things is that we know that there was a famine uh, in Israel, famine in Judah. Now, in the Old Testament, it's very, very clear that God would often send famine to bring about repentance amongst his people. He wanted his people, they had rebelled at times, he would send a famine so that they would repent and turn to him. So here we are, in Israel seeing this, they're in the midst of a famine. And so the whole nation knows, okay, something's wrong, God's getting, trying to get our attention, we need to repent so we can get through this, because that's the only way to get through this particular discipline. Secondly, it's important to know that worship in Israel was very geographically centered, okay? Uh, And this started as a result of the children of Israel when they were working their way through the desert. God instructed them to build a tabernacle, this huge tent. And in part of this tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, God's presence actually dwelt. And so there became this this understanding, actually, that God's presence was confined to a particular place. And that's why throughout Israel's history, in Jerusalem, they celebrated these annual feasts. They had more than one. And so people, the the whole population of Jerusalem would swell because people would come to Jerusalem to worship God in Jerusalem. And so worship became geographical. So uh, to walk away from Jerusalem to walk away from Israel was meaning basically that you were walking away from God because God wasn't seen as being somewhere else. He was seen as being here. And so we see Naomi and her uh, husband and her uh, uh, sons that they are leaving uh, Israel. So they're, they're, they're walking out, if you will. So first of all, so you have this situation they're, they're basically not trusting God to get them through to say, look, we're going to skip town. We're going to Moab, which, by the way, Moab was one of the uh, hated enemies of Israel. And so you could, like, you could go someplace else, but don't go to Moab. That'd be the last place you should go. But they, so, they, so they left uh, Israel. They, they say, hey, basically, we're not going to trust God. We're going to leave. We're going we're to we're try and get through this on our own. So they go to Moab, which was a hated enemy of Israel. And then, uh, so they also leave, in leaving Israel, they would be regarded by other Israelites as having walked out on God. That's basically what they, they just, they just walked out on God. Now, before things get better, what we're going to see is things actually get worse. So look in verse 3. Let's drop down to verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So Naomi's husband dies. 
the boys end up marrying Moabite women, which at that time would have been a huge disgrace for an Israelite. Because when the Israelites went into the promised land, God said, look, the Canaanites who are there, they worship idols. You worship me. Don't marry, don't let your sons marry Canaanite women because they'll steal your hearts and go after idols. Now, God's not against other people. He's, you know, it's in the scriptures are very clear at the end of times that we're going to have people from every tribe, every tongue worshiping God. Okay? But what he wants is he wants all, all of our hearts. When I, when I uh, proposed to my wife, I didn't look at her and say, hey, I'll be faithful to you 364 days a year. You have my full heart. But one day a year, I just need to go out with other girls. Will you marry me? Ladies, what would she have said? No, yeah, and she, yes, in no uncertain terms. She said, forget that, you know. She wants all of me. And it's the same way. So God is a jealous God, but that's great because he wants all of our hearts. And so for these guys, for these sons to take Moabite women, that would have been a huge disgrace. It would have been rebellion against the law of God because the Moabites were idol worshipers. So this whole thing is just getting worse and worse and worse. So I want you to put yourself in Naomi's position. You've left your country. You've basically walked out on your belief system, having been raised in that belief system since you were a little girl. You, uh, you, you go to a foreign land that is regarded as an enemy of, of the country where you grew up. So now you're in hostile territory. You're regarded as a traitor by your kinsmen. And then while you're there, your husband dies. Then your sons do something unimaginable to to the way you were raised, unimaginable that you could ever think of. They take these wives from another nation. And then they die. And you're left with these two daughter-in-laws to fend for yourself in a male-dominated culture with no way to support yourself. Now, you're in that situation. You're Naomi. Here's my question to you. What does God think about you? What does God think about you? How does he feel about you? Well, here's what Naomi's conclusion was. Let's go down to verse 12. Now, to understand this, we have to understand just a little bit about the culture, and that is this. If you, your husband died, you're, you say you're a woman, an Israelite woman, and your husband dies, by law, what happened is you were given in marriage to your husband's brother, so to your brother-in-law. And aren't we glad we don't live in that culture now? Yes. Because he was commanded by law to carry on the family name, and you were to have kids through your brother-in-law, and yeah. So what a mess. I mean, just what a mess. So anyway, so you have to understand that when in Naomi's uh, reply to her, who, to her daughter, she said, she says to them in verse 12, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So that's the conclusion Naomi came to. 
God is against me and God himself is bitter against me. So she's living in the light of all these decisions her and her husband have made, the decisions that her sons have made, and she's come to the conclusion, God's against me because of that. And isn't that just like us? We do that all the time. We define God's character based on the circumstances that we face. And so she, she says, look, she says, God's against me. In fact, when her and Ruth finally do go back to Israel and people start calling, hey, Naomi, it's good to see you. She's, no, 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 don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. She didn't want to be called Naomi. She wanted to be called bitter because she says, God has dealt bitterly with me. She's convinced that God is angry with her because of the decisions that she's made. Now, within all of us, when things happen, and I'm not just talking about, I mean, let's just face it. We're, we're not talking about little boo, life's little boo-boos or scrapes. I mean, this is her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Her whole way of life is now turned upside down. These are major, major life issues. And you don't say to someone in the middle of something like this, oh, just take the lemons and turn them into lemonade. It'll be fine. No, that doesn't work. That's not going to help. And what we find through this story, what we're going to see is that even though Naomi thinks God's against her and that God's abandoned her, it's just the opposite. God is intimately at work in and through her and in her circumstances. It's an amazing, amazing story. And so, but if you're like, if you're like Naomi, we begin to question what God does. And so the problem with that is if we begin to define God based on our circumstances, then what happens is we have to end up performing for God. We've got to make right decisions. We've got to do things the right way because if we don't, God will be angry. And you end up living a life of performance before God. Now, I just want to say if, if we, could, we all can get into that kind of lifestyle. And let me tell you, that, number one, that's exhausting. Have you ever tried to perform for someone who's always right? Yeah, don't answer that, okay, guys? Yeah, don't, don't answer that. <clears throat> but when you do, when you feel like you have to perform for someone and they're always right, they're never wrong, it's just like, I can't do it. I, I can't. I can't get it right. I'm never going to be good enough. And there may be some of you here who have felt like you've had to do that with God. Maybe it was because of the church that you grew up in. Maybe it was because you read the Bible and you didn't quite understand the real character of God. Who knows why? But I can tell you, if you have tried to live your life to perform for God, you inevitably come to the conclusion, I can't do it. What's the use? Because bad things continually happen, tragedies come, life throws all this stuff, and you think, what's the use? Even when I try, this stuff still happens. And you're just exhausted. And it just, it leads to nowhere. And it's at this point in the story with Ruth that we come face to face with the fact that God's not abandoned him but he's actually very much in tune with what's going on. And not only is he not abandoning him, but he's sovereignly working circumstances out for her ultimate deliverance, salvation, and also for the nation of Israel and for all those who would ultimately trust in Jesus. 
That's what he's doing here in this story. Now, what we're going to see is Naomi, on one hand, she got this right. She said she blamed God for the circumstances and said God's against me, basically, and, and, and he's abandoned me. Well, on one hand, she was right in, in thinking God is sovereign. He is in control. He is. Now, that's the hot potato. Because that creates all sorts of questions in our mind. Well, let's just go ahead and look at that. Put a verse up here for you. It's out of the book of Job. Now, Job is a very interesting book in the Bible. If you have a Bible reading program, I would not encourage you to start with Job. Okay? <laughs> Do that one later on, okay? Because it's kind of difficult. There's some things that happen. But Job, in a long story short, Job lost everything. He lost everything. He lost family, possessions, material, whatever, he, relationships. He lost it all. And he said in the beginning, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And at the end of the whole story, God restores Job, restores everything he lost, gives it back to him. And Job says this about God in Job, in, Job, in chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, you can't say that about God unless he's sovereign, unless he's in control. Because God can't do everything unless he's in control. And he can't always accomplish his purposes unless he's in control. If he's not in control, he can't always have his purposes because something else is in control. Circumstances or someone else or something else is, you know, whatever. And so it's like, you cannot make a statement like that unless God is sovereign. Now, the sovereignty of God is a great mystery, and we don't like mysteries. We like mystery novels because when we get to the end, they're solved. But mysteries in the scriptures, they're still mysteries. And we don't like that. We like things in neat little boxes where we can understand and we can explain them. And in our brains, it all fits and everything's categorical and all that. We like that. And the sovereignty of God is not one of those things. Because in our minds, when we deal with this issue about sovereignty of God, we, we have this thing about God's sovereignty, God's control, and our choices. And in our minds, never the two shall meet. But in Scripture, they're invariably linked. And that's difficult. But let me show you how it works. Give you a brief example. Uh, we'll put some scriptures up here on the board. Acts chapter 4. Background here is Jesus has already been crucified on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven. The disciples are now left with the, with the message of the gospel to, to, to give uh, to a lost world. And so Peter and John, a couple of the disciples, they're on their way to the temple to pray. They see a lame man, a beggar. He's asking for money. Peter says, look, I'll do better than that. I'll, 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 in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walk, walks. And, and everybody starts gathering around. And like a good preacher, Peter can't turn down an audience, so he begins to preach. And here's what he says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then what's it say? Whom what? You crucified. 
God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you all. So in this text, Peter lays the blame of the crucifixion at the feet of the people of Israel, at the feet of the Jews. Right? Okay? Now, let's go on the very same chapter, verse 27, 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to do. Ho, 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 ho. Just earlier you said it was the Jews' fault. Now you're saying it was predestined. Which is it? To which the Bible says both. I just blew your mind, didn't I? That's what the Bible does. You can't... It just, and so it's both. And you think, well, how does... How, well, what about my choices? Are they free? Are they not free? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this, in spite of my choices and all that they are, God's sovereign. And somehow, he works in the midst of my choices, even when I make bad choices. Because the crucifixion of Jesus was, I mean, let's just face it. It was the most wicked thing that would ever, has ever happened because Jesus was the most innocent purpose, person who ever lived. So it was motivated by greed. It was motivated by jealousy. It was motivated, you could just go through a litany of sins of what was motivating that. And yet behind it all, what does Peter say? It was predestined by God. Really? How does that work? So Naomi was right in ascribing these things to God. But she was very, very wrong to believe that God had abandoned her. And that what was happening to her was evidence of the fact that God didn't love her. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because what Naomi didn't realize that you and I now do is that God was sovereignly orchestrating circumstances for her deliverance. How do we know this? Because in Matthew chapter 1, this is one of these places where you get to in your Bible reading plan and you just kind of skim through because it's a genealogy. So-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. You say, okay, I don't need this. I can't even pronounce their names. So you just kind of move on. But guess what? In Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, in verse 5, we come across a woman's name and guess who the woman is? Ruth. Oh my. She's not even a Jew. And she shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. What's happening? Because God is using the circumstances. He's sovereignly arranging these circumstances to get Naomi, or to get Naomi and Ruth to Israel. Because in Israel, he's going to introduce Ruth to a guy named Boaz. And they're going to get married. And they're going to have a son named Obed. He's going to have a son named Jesse. He's going to have a son named David. Who's going to have a son? Who's going to have a son? Who's going to have a son? Who's going to have a son named Jesus? So all this time, Naomi is falling apart. Think God's against me. He's left me. He's abandoned me. And where's God? He's sovereignly working for her good and for the good, not only of her good, but for the good of a nation and for your good, for my good. Now this, I'm telling you, this is life. This is hard stuff. 
But we draw so much encouragement and so much hope from something like this. Now, if God's not in control, you have two, we have two other choices to believe, really. We can just believe in circumstantial fate. But for me, I'll speak for me, the problem with fate and the problem just with circumstantial evidence or just, you know, just circumstance, just case or rosterah, just happens, is that when you, take, when you start looking at the complexity of life, like our solar system, and, um, Brian one time went through, you know, our, our, uh, the earth, the axis that it's on, you know, we're not straight, you know, up and down, it's tilted. And if it's just tilted just a degree one way or another, the other way, it, everything just flies off into smithereens. If the moon weren't in the right distance, the exact distance from the sun and from us, gravity would, it'd just be a And so all this kind of stuff, and you look at that, and then you look at the complexity and the intricacy of the human body. And you just think, okay, is that, is that chance? Is that really chance? I, I, I have a hard time believing that. I have a very difficult time believing that. The other explanation is, well, it's, it's the devil. Well, the enemy caused that. We do have an enemy. He does come to seek, to steal, kill, and destroy. I believe that. Scripture is very clear on that. But here's the problem with this. If you ascribe all the bad things to the devil, then all of a sudden you've got to consider, okay, how did, that, how did he get in that position to do that? Well, and, and what happens is it ends up being, it ends up being self-centered. Because like, well, I didn't pray enough. I didn't say the right things. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I did this. I did, you know, and now to get the devil off your back, I need to do this. I need to do this. I don't need to do this. I have to do this. And now it becomes all centered around me. I just, I want to tell you, when life gets centered around you, you're in a bad place because it was never meant to be about you. It's never meant to be about me. It's about God. Let me give you a couple of real-life stories from my background. One of them is very real because it just happened this last week, but I'll take you to the other one. Uh, when I was in college, I had a guy mentor me and just kind of came along beside me, taught me just some basic truths about Scripture, about God's love for me. He was a real father in the faith to me. And uh, it so happens that we, after I graduated, uh, he ended up, going somewhere else, and we hooked back up in seminary together. And uh, we're pretty good, real good friends. He's probably one of my best friends at the time. When we graduated from seminary, he went on to the University of Oklahoma and served in campus ministry there. And he had three kids. And I'd, when I was in seminary, I'd go over to his house twice a week and have dinner. His wife and him had, to, had me over for dinner twice a week. And I got word that one day that he was a big baseball card collector. He had a lot of baseball cards. He'd go to baseball shows, sell his cards. And so he was coming back from a show in Texas somewhere, and it was late at night, and there was a drunk driver who was on the wrong side of the interstate, and it killed him. And um, I don't know how long it was after that, but it was sometime after that, less than 10 years. His daughter is 
going to get married. And she was in Norman, Oklahoma. And the week before her wedding, she went to go see her mom, and they were working on her veil for her wedding dress. And on the way home, she was hit by a drunk driver and killed. And they buried Beth in her wedding dress. And one of my friends did the funeral, and at the funeral, he made this statement. He said, listen, we can take solace from the fact that God didn't have anything to do with this and that he's mourning with us. I don't believe that. I do believe in the latter part, that God was definitely mourning that. God doesn't, he weeps with us in tragedy, and that's tragic. Now, I'm not saying that God killed Beth. I'm not saying that, but I am saying God's in control. Don't ask me how that plays out. I don't know. That's not my responsibility. You take, if, you, if you've ever seen a, a giant mosaic, like you've been down to the, the Cathedral Basilica here in town, it's beautiful mosaics, just gorgeous. And if you were, you can't get up close, but if you could get up close, you'd see that some of those pieces are really dark. Some of them are black. And if you just looked at those pieces alone, you'd say, that's ugly. But when it's placed in the context of a mosaic, it forms a beautiful, beautiful picture. And that's how God does. He's working things out for his glory and for our best. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Now, when we hear of a death of a young girl like that, we think that it is a tragedy. It's a huge tragedy. But there's something within us that says, that's not right. Well, my question would be, does God owe us X number of days? The fact that you and I woke up this morning and are here, that's a gift from God. I didn't do anything to deserve breath when I woke up this morning. Not a thing. So why is it that I woke up and yet someone else on the other side of the world or someone else in this country didn't? I don't know. I can't explain it. But I I trust that God's sovereign. And I trust that he's in control and he's doing what he's doing for his good, for his glory, and my best. But to say that God doesn't have any part of that, that doesn't give me any peace at all. Because we say, okay, God's a loving God and God's in control. If he's loving but not in control, we have an empathetic God who can't do anything for us. If he's in control but doesn't love us, we have a dictator who wants his way. But he's both. Hallelujah. Now, let me tell you a story. Something happened to me just this last week. I'm in the real estate business, and uh, I'm an investor. So I have my own business, and this last uh, three weeks ago, uh, actually before that, about a month ago, I was approached by a company and said, hey, why don't you come work for us? And so there was some dialogue that went on for a couple weeks. And the guy who was approaching me, I thought, you know what, this is a real opportunity. He's got a lot more experience than I do, and he's going to train me and some things. And it just looked like a really great deal. So I said, I'll do it. <clears throat> so I took this job, go to the office, and, you know, he's training me and all this stuff. And so this last week, which is the third weekend, uh, I'm there on Monday, and this guy's not there. I mean, that's kind of strange, because usually when he's not there, we always see he'll text or something, hey, I'm not going to be in today. 
So at the end of the day, I say, hey, missed you today. Hope everything's okay. Tuesday, I show up at the office, and he's not there again. And I'm thinking, something's not right. Wednesday, I give him a phone call. It goes immediately to his voicemail, doesn't answer. Hey, I'm concerned. Are you okay? What's happening? I get a text. I've left the company. I'll call you this afternoon. Tuesday was my birthday. I'm 57 years old. I don't need this kind of drama in my life. (laughs) Now, I've got a choice to make. Do I say, wow, I made a huge mistake? You know, now what do I do? Or do I say, wow, the devil won that game. I mean, look what's happened here. I need to, you know. No, that's not going to get me anywhere. So my plan, my first thought was, I've got to talk to my wife, and this is not going to go well for her because, you know, I'm feeling sorry for her about this. And uh, but she handled it well, bless her heart. And so my thought is, God knew this. Before he even took this job, he knew this. And nothing caught him by surprise. And if I trust in a sovereign God who loves me, let's just say it was a mistake. Guess what? God's bigger than my mistake. Let's say I made a dumb decision. God's bigger than my dumb decision. And if he wants me somewhere else, he'll get me somewhere else. If he wants me to succeed there, he'll have me succeed there. Why am I worried? I've told my wife, I said, look, nothing's changed. Before this, God was our provider. Guess what? He's still our provider. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And so regardless, folks, I don't know what your circumstances you're facing, but listen, you can trust in the hands of a sovereign God. He loves you. And at those times when you think, God's abandoned me, he doesn't care for me, he, you know, I've done something to offend him, I want you to know that according to scripture, nothing could be further from the truth. He's not abandoned you. And he will always, always seek to demonstrate his love for you. Now, it doesn't mean we don't go through difficulties all the time, but we cling to a sovereign God who loves us. And we grow stronger because of that. We grow stronger. Get out your communication cards, if you would. They're in your bulletins there. I want to help you respond in some way. It's always great to give some sort of action to truth because just to hear it, it doesn't, nothing, it doesn't accomplish anything just to, just to hear it. We, we need to put some some boots on the ground, if you will. And we've got some, some things here to, to help with that. Now these, once again, I believe God can speak to you any way he wants. These are just a few things that maybe he's done. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that. I, I cannot, listen to me, I cannot commend Jesus to you enough. I've never met anybody who loves me like he does. It's overwhelming. And I've done nothing for him to deserve it. I don't get that. 
I don't get it. In fact, I'm well aware of how I failed him more. And yet, he just keeps on loving me. Knowing him is the greatest experience of my life. And I want to say to you, if you don't know him as Savior, give him your heart. He absolutely loves you. And he'll walk with you through this life. Be baptized. It's just a way that we demonstrate our, our uh, commitment to the Lord Jesus. It's a, Brian's explained before, it's just a, a, it's a symbol of how we've died with Christ, raised to him, with him in new life. He now lives through us. It's just, it's the greatest miracle in all of life to get a, a new start. And it's not just like you just put on new clothes. No, he makes you a new person. He makes you a new person. That, that's astounding. And then lastly, trust in God's good sovereignty. Once again, I don't know what your circumstances are, but if you tend to evaluate God's character based on your circumstances, I want to encourage you, repent. Don't do that. Because God's love is faithful and true. And it says, here's what the scriptures say about God's love for us. It is new Every morning. Holy moly. Does it get any better than that? If you've not trusted in God's good sovereignty, I want to encourage you to say, just listen, checking that box isn't going to, that's not going to, but you know what? It's a step to say, God, change my thinking. Help me to come to know you as this kind of God because that's who he is.